I want to welcome you all again to Providence Road. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I just want to take a minute to uh, um, say thank you for prayers last week. We, uh, the, the Rona finally got us um, last week, and um, we were down and out, and, and Jay um, did a great job filling in last week, and kind of on last minute notice, we flip-flopped our our sermons, um, or at least the weeks we were preaching them, and he did a great job. And um, yeah, we're good, we're fine. We're on the kind of the back end of that, and it was uh, um, about what we expected. Um, there's still some of those like fatigue moments and um, some weird headache moments, and I, I got about 50 percent taste and smell back, so that's that's better than it was about a week ago. Um, but we are good, and uh, we are uh, we are back and on the mend. And thank you all for um, those of you who reached out and said um, we could do anything for us or um, prayed for us. We really, really appreciate it. Let me pray um, for our time and time in the Word, and then we'll jump in. Father, we're so thankful for this time where we can come together and um, corporately together as brothers and sisters in Christ and um, worship you and honor you and sing songs full of truth and pray prayers full of truth and um, also um, sit under um, your word and allow it to change us, allow it to speak to our minds and our hearts and speak to how we live when we leave this place. And so, uh, God, I just ask that your spirit would move today, that the scriptures would challenge us, but it would also comfort us. Help us as we dig into your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're continuing on in this series where we're walking through the gospel of John. And when we're approaching this scripture, anytime we approach the scripture, on a Sunday morning or in our own time, one of the foundational questions we have to ask ourselves is, what was the author's purpose in writing what he wrote in this particular place in the book? And today, we're going to ask that question of John, the apostle who wrote this book. Why did he write it for the audience in that day and time? And also then, why is he writing it to us? Why is this where it's at in the scriptures, in the Bible? And why is it included in the scriptures? Why is it important enough for it to be included in the Bible? And today, really, John's going to aim at, um, he's going to tell a narrative of when the disciples first met, when some of the first disciples first met, Jesus. And really the questions that I think John's trying to get at in this particular part of the book are these questions that we're all asking and we're all trying to find answers to. These are questions that all humans ask. Things like, who am I? What am I here for? What's my purpose in life? What am I going to chase while I'm here? What am I going to run from while I'm here? What am I looking for? These are the kinds of questions that I think John had in his mind when he included this narrative about the first disciples meeting Jesus and being kind of called into following him. Here's a quote from um, a book called You Are Not Your Own. It's a great book written by a guy named Alan Noble. Um, he actually is, uh, as it o- teaches at OBU. And he, uh, he wrote this, kind of talking about this idea of identity and where we get um, our identity from and how we answer these questions. He says... To be your own and belong to yourself means that the most fundamental truth about existence is that you are responsible for your existence and everything that it entails. I am responsible for living a life of purpose. 
of defining my identity, of interpreting meaningful events, of choosing my values, and electing where I belong. If I belong to myself, then I am the only one who can set limits on who I am or what I can do. No one else has the right to define me, to choose my journey in life, or to assure me that I am okay. I belong to myself. He goes on, but the freedom of sovereign individualism comes at a great price. Once I am liberated from all social, moral, natural, and religious values, I become responsible for the meaning of my own life. With no God to judge or justify me, I have to be my own judge and redeemer. This burden manifests as, manifests as a desperate need to justify our lives through identity crafting and expression. But because everyone else is also working frantically to craft and express their own identity, society becomes a space of vicious competition between individuals vying for attention, meaning, and significance, not unlike the contrived drama of reality TV. And what Alan Noble is really arguing in this book, You Are Not Your Own, is this idea that we have two ways to approach living. We have two ways to approach God. We can either say, I am my own, like I'm going to create my own identity or kind of take the world, the one that the world wants me to have and kind of do my own thing. Or I'm going to, to believe that I actually belong to God. I belong to God and he is the one who gets to guide my steps, give me the map for the way I should live. And today, we're going, Jesus is going to, um, or John really, um, is going to give us a map as he writes this this, this gospel of the way we should follow in Jesus' steps by looking at these early disciples. Now, at the beginning of chapter 1, we covered in the intro, this was kind of the thesis that John was laying out two weeks ago, right? Really, why he wrote the book. He laid it out in those first 18 verses. And now we're looking at verse 19. I know Jay jumped ahead uh, last week. Um, he looked at the wedding at Cana, Jesus turning the water into the wine, this kind of first sign that Jesus performed um, that John records, but we're going to go back today, and, and John is going to, to look at how these original disciples, the pillars of the early church, came to be followers of Jesus. And this is a, this is a narrative, this is a story, I'll, I'll bet a true story, but it is one that we need to try to put ourselves into. So as we're, we read the, those passages and we're thinking about it, we need to put ourselves in the place of those early disciples as they were first meeting Jesus, especially John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer. Um, this is who we're going to focus on primarily today. So who was John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer? Um, he was related to Jesus through his mom, Elizabeth. We know Elizabeth and Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, were related. So John the Baptist um, had, um, uh, had uh, bloodlines with Jesus. He received a calling from the angel Gabriel when he was still in Elizabeth's womb that he was going to be set apart, that he was going to have this special role and calling as a messenger and one who would prepare the way for Jesus to come. So he was a set-apart guy for a set-apart purpose. Now listen to what Jesus says in Matthew about John the Baptist. Just so we're clear, when I say, I'm going to try to clarify when I'm talking about John the writer, the apostle of this book. John the Baptist didn't write the Gospel of John, the Apostle John wrote it, right? John the Baptist is someone different who John the writer is actually talking about in the chapter 1 here. But in Matthew, this is Jesus speaking about John the Baptist. He says this, 
As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Like a, a weak guy that was like blown around by all everything? No, no, no. That's, he's saying, that's, that's not who you went to see. And then he says, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. In verse 9, what then, did, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of who it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. And listen to verse 11. Listen to what Jesus says about John the Baptist here. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, which is all human beings ever, right? If you didn't get that. There has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's a crazy thing for Jesus to say about another human being. He goes on to say, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. He's reminding everybody, um, uh, there's also this kingdom kind of upside down thing where the least will be the greatest and the greatest will be the least. So that still applies. But he's talking about on earth, as human beings, John's the greatest. John's the greatest who's ever lived as far as those born of a woman. Quite a striking thing for Jesus to say about someone else. Like, this is a great reference, right? You ever had to go grab references for things? Like, having Jesus say these things about you, that's a pretty good reference. You're probably going to get that job. You're probably going to get that whatever you're looking for if Jesus is saying these things about you. And we don't see this in Scripture. We don't see uh, people, men and women in Scripture, who have this kind of track record in their life. Usually, you have at least most of the characters in Scriptures outside of Jesus have these, these, these sin, really sinful, dark moments. Or these seasons where they've run away from God and God has had to bring them back. Or they had a life previous to knowing God or knowing Jesus, but not with John the Baptist. John from the womb, um, he got that calling in the womb from the angel Gabriel. And from early, early on, he knew what he was called to do. And and the writer John in this book, I think, highlights John the Baptist here in, in a great way to show us what being a disciple really looks like. If we're going to aspire to live a life as a disciple who follows Jesus, this is a pretty good guy to emulate um, our lives after. Now, why would Jesus say these things about John the Baptist? Why would he call him the greatest? And that's really what we're going to spend our time today looking at. Why would Jesus say these things about John the Baptist? What makes John great in the words of Jesus? Let's look at verse 19. John says this, the writer of the gospel, he says this, and this is the testimony of John, which is John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now let's stop here. Whenever the writer John says the Jews in that kind of way in this book, he's really talking about the Jewish elite. Because anybody in the audience at this time was more than likely going to be of of Jewish descent. But when he says the Jews, he's, he's usually talking about the Sanhedrin, the, the power brokers, the influencers, the, the Levites and the scribes and the Pharisees. So this is kind of the body of, of Jewish folk who sent the priests and Levites to ask him, who are you? Who are you? What's going on? And the reason why they did this is because they're, they're really nervous. They're frightened really on two fronts, right? They're threatened. Number one, J- John the Baptist is gathering a following at this point. He's gathering a following, he has disciples, he's baptizing, he's doing all these things. And the, the, the religious leaders are nervous because, one, they're, he, they're t- he's taking their power away from them. 
He wants the Jewish people there in that region to follow their religious system, to follow their teachings. They, they want to kind of keep people under their control to some degree and be the examples for what it looks like uh, to love God in that, in that context. But John's not having it. He's out preaching crazy things in their mind. And he's starting to get a following. He's stirring the pot. And the second thing they're concerned about is they don't want the Romans to catch wind of this new movement. Because they know they just kind of want to be quiet. They want to be this little, this little uh, province of the Roman Empire out on the fringes so they can kind of do their own religious thing. And they know if John the Baptist keeps this momentum going, keeps stirring the pot, the Roman authorities are going to catch wind with, of it. And they're going to come and clamp down on all religious expression in that area. Which is probably what they're more concerned with even. Because they want to be kind of still buddy-buddy with the Roman Empire to be able to do what they want to do. So they continue to press them with questions. What, who are you? What's going on? What's happening? Things like, who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you Jesus? Are you the Christ? Are you the prophet? And John says, no, I'm not, I'm not any of those people. And in verse 23, he says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Right? So he's, he, he answers them by saying, no, I'm not any of these guys. I'm a voice crying out in the wilderness. And he refers to Isaiah, which we'll look at here in a second. And also interesting thing about John the Baptist, he's actually mentioned, not by name, but we know who the scriptures are talking about in the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament. This is the last uh, kind of book recorded in the Bible before there was this 400 years of silence before Jesus started his ministry. And in Malachi 3.1, it says this. God says this through the prophet Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger. That messenger there is John the Baptist. And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you will seek, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And Malachi here is speaking of John the Baptist. You see, John the Baptist or John the baptizer understands his role. Like he gets it from birth. He understands this is what I'm made to do. This is what I'm called to do. I'm called to be a voice. And I think one of the key things that Jesus sees in John, which is why Jesus calls John great, is his humility. It's his humility. You could say that today's like lesson or study here is just a study in what does biblical humility look like? Again, in verse 23, he says, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. He says, I'm just a voice. Isn't that interesting when, when, you, when, when somebody's dis, to describe yourself, you're not even describing yourself with talking about your body or who you are or who you look like or who maybe you're descended from. No, John just says, I'm a voice. I'm just air. I'm just, I'm just a sounds coming out of a mouth. That's all I am. I'm just a voice preparing the way for someone far greater. It's a great deal of humility there that John has. And then the religious leaders, they keep pressing him, right? On day two, it says, they keep pressing him. They start to ask him about baptizing, right? It says, well, then why are you baptizing? Baptizing is kind of a big deal, right? If somebody's baptizing someone, it's like, okay, there's something important going on here. This is a ceremony. They're curious, why are you baptizing? And again, he says this, shows humility. Verse 26, John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, talking about Jesus. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. 
And whenever, when they would have heard that, they would have gotten what John was saying here. He's basically saying there was this idea, and, and we can uh, picture how kind of gross feet would have been in this context, right? Dusty roads, mud, not a lot of pavement, shoes weren't a thing there, it was just sandals, right? And you can imagine in the hot Middle Eastern climate, feet were dirty, feet were gross, feet smelled, and therefore sandals were a disgusting piece of clothing that someone wore. So as even said, this was such a nasty thing that, that, that masters didn't even expect their slaves to untie their sandals. Like it was such a, a lowly thing to have to do that slaves weren't even allowed to untie sandals. And what John the, John the Baptist is saying here is that I'm not even worthy to untie these things. I, I'm below being able to untie this, this man's sandals. That's how low I am and that's how great he is. This isn't a, just a regular great rabbi or king. This is the Messiah. This is the Savior. This is Jesus, the Christ. And this is who I am in comparison to Jesus. And then verse 28, I love this kind of thing. that's just kind of thrown in here, but I like when this, the writers do this. It says, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The, John didn't have to add that in there, Right? But what he's doing here is he's showing specifically where something took place to show the validity, validity of what happened. He's giving like coordinates here, right? He's giving, hey, here's exactly where this happened. So if you want to go do the research yourself, if you want to go ask in this area, if there was a man named John the Baptist baptizing here many years ago, then go ask. It's right here. Just go over there and ask. And you'll, this John is, again, kind of showing the validity of what actually happened here is true. It's historical fact, and you can go check it out because he's given details on where to find the answers. And then, uh, then the last thing that John says, just to show his humility, is that a couple chapters later in John 3, most of us have heard kind of this saying, too, from John. This is uh, um, in verse 29 of chapter 3. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And here's the, the imagery that, that John the Baptist is giving here as he's talking. He's preaching here. He's teaching in this moment. And he says um, this picture that the bride is God's people, right? It, the Israelites, the church, it's the bride. The groom is Jesus. The groom is Jesus. And he's saying, I'm the friend of the bridegroom. So I'm in the background. I'm just a guy who's kind of standing by the groom, but he, stands, but he says, who stands and hears him and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. See, Jesus has finally come on the scene at this point. He's preaching. He's doing ministry. And John the Baptist is just overwhelmed that he gets to hear the voice of the bridegroom. He's saying, I'm just a guy. I, I'm just a guy in the background. But he says in verse 29, therefore, this joy of mine has been complete. Like now that I've seen Jesus, I know him. I've witnessed him. My joy is complete. And then in verse 30, he says, he must increase, I must decrease. Right? He, he, be, he must become greater. The spotlight needs to be taken off me and now put on Jesus. I need to fade into the shadows. I need to move back. And Jesus needs to take center stage here as you all that are watching me and following me look at Jesus. So, 
John has this character, namely humility, that makes him the greatest in Jesus' eyes. So what's the source of this, right? We should be on the edge of our seats, right? If Jesus is going to call someone great, don't you want to be called great by Jesus? We should be on the edge of our seats. It's obviously humility, but, but John the Baptist, how do you get this humility? How is this cultivated in your life where you have this much humility? Verse 29. The next day, so this is after the two days of kind of talking to the religious leaders. Verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. And from what we can tell, this is the first time John actually saw Jesus. He knew he was there. He knew he was around. But he sees Jesus and he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That idea of behold, that's kind of old language, really just means to, to, to say, don't look and look away. Don't look and then forget. Grasp it. Take it in. Gaze at this man. Take it all in. Don't forget. Hold on to what you see. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in a few verses later, in verse 34, he says, And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is him. This is the Messiah. This is the man who takes away the sin of the world. Now, when we hear that statement, we're missing out on a lot of background that his original audience would have heard here. This, this original Jewish audience, the Passover um, is what this is referring to, really. When they would have heard, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Jewish folk would have immediately thought of the Passover, which is one of the, the greatest events in the history of God's people. And so we need to talk a little bit about the Passover, because they have this imagery that we don't have. Passover was when God's people were in Egypt. They were under um, the, 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 the rule of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh was enslaving them. He was being unjust. He was a murderer. He treated them horrible. He was a horrible leader that the Israelites found themselves enslaved to. God, through Moses, says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no, sends the plagues. Tenth plague, God says, okay, I'm going to take, I'm going to kill, I'm going to take all of your firstborn sons in Egypt. All of them. This is the final judgment. Pharaoh says, no, I'm not letting them go. So God says, okay. And, but he goes to the, through, through Moses, God tells his people, the Israelites, don't think you're righteous here. You're guilty too. You're sinful. There's no one righteous here, but I'm going to provide a way out. Here's the way out for you. Take a lamb and sacrifice it, kill it. Take the blood from that lamb and put it on the doorposts of your house this night that I'm coming through, that I'm going to send my, the angel of death through. So they, he says, put it on your doorposts, and this will cover your sin. When the angel of death sees your house, uh, the angel will pass over, which is where you get the word for that. Pass over your house. You will be spared. Your oldest child will be spared. And this blood coming from this lamb will save you. It will save your oldest child. So this was seared into a Jewish person's mind. This is a great event. God provided a way, but they had to follow the directions that God gave them through Moses, and they did. They put blood on their, their doorposts, the angel passed over, and they remember and celebrate this moment year after year after year. So they would have had all this imagery when he says this. Now, the Jewish people, what they do, um, what they are accurate in 
in this time is they, are, they have an accurate view of their sinfulness and need for God. They really do, because they, they've had a lot of history. They have a lot of, 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 of writings, the Pentateuch namely, the first five books of the Old Testament. They know how sinful they are. They're well aware of that. And this is why they've been anticipating the coming of the Messiah for so long. Isaiah 53, this is what um, John was referring to earlier, or Jesus was referring to earlier about John. Um, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Here it is, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth, talking about Jesus being the lamb, the lamb of God. And so when the Jewish folk would have heard this, they would have understood completely what John was referring to. Behold, look, this is him, the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And one of the key questions for us, this audience right here in our time and place, is do we see our need for Jesus? Do we see our need for Jesus? Do we see our need for the Lamb to be sacrificed on our behalf? If you're here, you're not, a, you're not a follower of Jesus. This, is, uh, this sermon really is an invitation. The way the disciples were being invited to follow, follow Jesus in this part of John. If you're not a follower of Jesus in here, you're being invited into a relationship with him today. To admit that you need Jesus. To, to be humble enough to say, yeah, I don't, I don't have it all together. I'm not my own savior. I'm tired of that. I need, I need someone to take the wrath of God off me, and I believe that Jesus did that on my behalf. This is how you become a follower of Jesus. But more than anything else, do we see our need for Jesus? For all of us, do we see our need for Jesus? And this is why John's able to say, behold, when he sees Jesus, gaze, look, grasp who this man is. This is why he ends up saying things like, I'm just a voice. That's it, I'm just a voice. Or I'm not even worthy to untie or unstrap this guy's sandals. He's so great and I'm so um, lesser than he. He must increase and I decrease. John's whole purpose is wrapped up in who Jesus is. His identity is a follower of Jesus, right? Whatever Jesus says, he's going to do. This is the identity that John has. John, to use Alan Noble's words from his book, John knows that he is not his own. He knows he belongs to God. That's been clear to him since birth. But he truly understands the only true freedom for him is going to be to be a servant of Jesus, to follow him, to know him, to love him. So again, back to the questions we asked at the beginning of our time. Why do we exist? Why do you exist? How do you see yourself? How do you get identity? Right? What's, what do you base your identity in? Is it your career? Is it your family? Is it from something about your mom or dad? Is it about who you're dating? Who you're married to? How you're parenting? Your appearance? Your successes? Your political beliefs, what is your identity in? Or what are you prone to put your identity in other than Jesus? You see, there's, if you leave God out of um, 
your identity in creating that. You're going to create it yourself or someone outside of you is going to create it for you. Something in the culture will create it for you. See, John doesn't care who he is. He doesn't care. He's not a navel gazer. He's not interested in being someone. This is not who John is. But based on the way he acts, the way he dresses, he's weird. This is a strange, weird dude. Even the other gospel writers make it clear this guy was weird. The way he dressed, he ate locust, he was outside the walls of the city, he was kind of in the wilderness guy, dressed funny. He doesn't care what people think of him. Now, we may say in our world today that, well, John was suffering from low self-esteem, right? He needed something, right? He just didn't have good self-esteem about himself. No, John didn't need any self-esteem. He didn't need any self, a pep talk to get him more self-esteem. If someone doesn't think they're great like John, there's only two, two things it could be, right? They're so focused on themselves that they're nitpicking and tearing themselves apart till they get down to the fact that they think they're, wor- they're not worthy of anything. They have no worth, they have no value because of they just nitpick themselves apart. That's one way to be so self-absorbed um, that you, you don't think you're great. The other way, which is the way of, of John was, was that you just don't take yourself too seriously. That your eyes are focused outward at something greater than yourself and therefore, you're not so focused inward on yourself, and you're not really worried about who you are because something outside of yourself is greater for you to look at. John is so focused on Jesus that it allows him to have the kind of character that makes him great. Think of parenting, right? In parenting, as followers of Jesus, especially with a, a biblical worldview, we don't want to teach our kids to have high self-esteem or high self-worth. That's not how, what we wanna, how we want to speak to them as parents. We want them to get their worth from God, who created them in God's image, who says you're good and you, you're valuable and you deserve respect because I made you, because you're made in my image. We don't want them to try to get their identity from them, themselves or get their esteem from inside themselves. That's, a, that, that's brokenness waiting to happen. We want to point to God to show our kids their value and worth. Not try to draw it out from within because that's going to frustrate them for the rest of their lives. See, John is getting his character from his identity in Jesus, right? He doesn't have low self-esteem. He knows exactly who he is. He's so confident in his calling and who he is that he doesn't care about what people think. He has so much value for who he is and God in his calling. He has courage, John the Baptist does, right? This is something we should aspire to, right? John the Baptist would be arrested. If you don't know how his life would end, he was arrested. And while he was in um, kind of captivity with Herod, he calls out Herod and Herod's mistress for adultery. He says, hey, y'all, this is, this is sinful. Like, this, is, this isn't good. And then wallop, his head gets cut off. He's, he gets killed. He gets murdered because he was speaking truth to um, those in power there, and they didn't want to hear it from John anymore, so they killed him. He was a martyr. He died for his faith. He had courage. It's something we should aspire to as far as of Jesus. How can we be courageous in a world that doesn't always agree with what we believe? Right? How can we stand firm and contend for the things um, that we think are truth in this world? 
And on the flip side of that, though, no one would say John the baptizer is weak. He's not weak, right? But he's what the Bible would call and describe as meek, right? He's meek, but not weak. He doesn't care about power. He doesn't care about controlling people. He doesn't care about people's approval, right? His strength comes from within. He's not, he doesn't have to beat his own chest and, and try to get everybody to see how awesome he is. Again, he's just a voice. So he has this balance of being very meek, that his strength comes from within. But he's also very courageous in standing firm uh, what his calling was and what he believed. He's humble. We see that when Jesus comes on the scene, right, he's got this following, which would probably make all of us feel pretty good. People were following us, following us around, listening to what we said. And then when Jesus comes on the scene, it's clear that he kind of passes the, the baton to Jesus. He says, hey, I, I don't, don't, don't follow me anymore. Like, behold the Lamb of God. This is the guy you should follow. Like, I'm just going to kind of fade away here. This is the guy you need to follow. Don't follow me anymore. Follow the Lamb of God. He just fades into the background. How hard would that be for us to pass the baton to someone else when we're getting so much um, attention and, and, and following from other people? And the great thing is these are all qualities Jesus possesses as well, right? We want to be like Jesus, right? We want to stand for, for certain things, but we also want to do that in a way where we're gentle and we're respectful and we're loving, right? This is what we should all aspire to as disciples. And how do we get that? We get that by beholding the Lamb of God, by grasping who Jesus is, by understanding what does it mean that Jesus is the Lamb of God and he takes away the sin of the world. What does that mean for me? And how does that lead me to be a disciple that is full of humility and courage and meekness and looking for ways to serve and love other people? But here's the crazy thing about this. As we start asking, how did, what does this mean for us more specifically? We have an advantage that John the Baptist didn't have. We have an advantage over him. First off, we've experienced the Spirit. And we've experienced the Spirit. The Spirit of Jesus lives inside of those who believe. We have his Spirit empowering us to be the kind of person that John the Baptist was. And John the Baptist didn't even know Jesus until the, towards the end of his life. Again, this is probably the first time that John has met Jesus. And it, it seems like that's what the scriptures are saying here. The way John reacts when Jesus comes on the scene. But yet John, in Jesus' words, this is, the greatest, this is the greatest human ever born of a woman. And there's another aspect of this idea of beholding. And it's that, that we see this as he, throughout the rest of the chapter, as he calls, we see him call Nathaniel and Andrew and Peter, some of these early followers. For all of them, he says, come and see. Come and follow. Come and see what I'm like. Come and see how I love people. Come and see how I obey. Come and see how I teach. He is inviting them to get close to him. He's inviting them to follow him to actually abide in him, to use the language of John 15. He's calling them to come, be near, follow. He's calling them to a firsthand knowledge and experience of him. So we need to ask ourselves, those of us who are professing Christians here, we need to ask ourselves, do we have a firsthand relationship, firsthand knowledge of Jesus? Or do we get our knowledge and our relationship from Jesus through other authors that are outside the Scripture? or podcasts, or other preachers, 
or even Sunday mornings here at Providence Road. Again, all good things, not bad things, but if that's the primary way you know Jesus is secondhand through other disciples, we need to work on that. We need to grow in this area. We need to work on what does it look like for me to have a relationship, a firsthand relationship with Jesus. That's why a couple of weeks ago we talked about what does it look like to get in the Word, to set up practices. There's so many resources out there. We have uh, discipleship groups and gospel communities for us to get in and wrestle and fight with each other to have firsthand knowledge of Jesus. So we can go around saying, behold the lamb. Behold the one who takes away the sin of the world. Because here's what this does. If we become people who behold the lamb, a few things are going to happen. Number one, we're going to have a true and stable identity. The two kinds of identity that I see most and I even struggle with the most are what I call treadmill identity and roller coaster identity, right? A treadmill identity is you put that treadmill on and you got to keep up with that treadmill, If you don't keep up with the treadmill, you're going to fall off and it's going to hurt and you're going to be on a YouTube video, right? And so, like, you've got to keep up once you put that treadmill on. Is that what it's like to try to be religious, right? It's running. i got to keep up. And so your life becomes a slave to righteousness, trying to keep up, trying to be good enough so you don't fall off that treadmill. Or you're on the roller coaster, um, identity, right? The people that you value, how they speak of you, if you've had a good week, if you've had good circumstances, if you've, if you've been, um, if, if social media has maybe been good for you that week, you're high. Like you're feeling strong. You're feeling really good. You have a lot of joy. But when those people you really value their opinion or your circumstances aren't good, you dip. And now you don't know who you are. And now you're grasping and you can't figure it out and you medicate and you turn to other things for that identity. What beholding the Lamb of God and putting our faith and trust in Jesus does, it gives us a solid foundation, foundational identity where we don't have to get on the treadmill. We don't have to ride the roller coaster. We can wake up every morning and trust and believe that he is who he says we are, that we're his, that, that we're, he, he, we're, we're his children, we're sons, we're daughters. He's our father. He loves us despite our failures and mess ups and things we do. We have a stable identity. Secondly, it allows us to love other people without any strings attached. Because if you're trying to build up your own identity, here's what you're going to do. You're going to use people, probably unintentionally most times, but you're going to use other people to prop up your identity. Because you're going to need people to treat you in a certain way so that your identity can remain up, right? You can be on the high end of that roller coaster. So you're going to do things trying to get something from someone so you can prop up your own identity right? This is a struggle in marriage. Those of you who are married, like this is, this is kind of the back and forth of marriage, right? Like trying to be impressive to your spouse. And if he or she isn't imp- impressed by you in that moment, you get frustrated, right? And you get snarky and then conflict happens, right? But if we're not looking to other people to prop up our identity, we can love people without any strings attached. We can love people unconditionally and not expect something back from them when we love them well. And lastly, we get to have a voice. We get to be a witness. We have, like John the Baptist, we can be considered voices for who Jesus is. Ambassadors. We're just here to be proclaimers and livers of the good news. And that's really the calling on all of our lives. And if we're not looking to other things to fill our identity, we are freed up to be more like John the Baptist, who doesn't care what people think. 
Like, I don't care what clothes I wear. Don't care. Maybe you shouldn't eat locusts in public, right? That may be a damage to the witness, right? But we cannot care what people think. It's clear that John the Baptist didn't. He did not care what people thought. And people listened to him. People followed him. And people looked when he said, behold, the Lamb of God. He had a voice because he didn't care about what other people thought of him. Because his identity was in Jesus and his calling to Jesus. So let's look at John the Baptist as really the model disciple who was following Jesus, who is the ultimate example of how um, we can be disciples and witnesses of who Jesus is. Let's pray. Father, I just pray as we sit here um, as a community, as a church, that we would just commit and have resolve to pursue you, to behold you, to grasp you, to gaze at you, and to, to, to pursue you in such a way that we can say that. But this is so hard. It's so hard not to get distracted. It's so hard to not let the cares of the world choke out the fruit that you want to bear in us. So we need, we need your help through your spirit. We need the help of our brothers and sisters sitting around us in this room. So I pray that we would commit to trust your spirit, to pray, to be people who are needy, needy of your spirit to move in our lives to follow Jesus the way John the Baptist did. I pray that we would commit to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ to live alongside with one another and point to Jesus. Look, brother, behold the Lamb of God. Look, sister, behold the Lamb of God. I pray we would be people in a church who point each other to the source of our character, the source of our joy, the source of our hope, the source that allows us to love other people well. Help us do that. It's in your son's beautiful and powerful name we pray. Amen.